Luke chapter 10. Let's bring us up to speed. In chapter 9, Jesus sent out the 12, the people that had been with him for up to this point, about two years, year and a half to two years, sent them out to preach the gospel, told them, and gave them authority over demons, over sickness, uh, and even over death. And they went out and they preached the gospel. And they came back and, and Jesus searched for a place and a time where they could uh, talk about their adventures, talk about what happened. And the disciples were, were bursting to be able to tell what they had seen and what they had heard. Problem is, there were some things that happened along the way. And that's what happens to us sometimes. You know, you want to get to a place where you can rest and relax, but there's still ministry to be done. And so we see some things that happened along the way. They returned. Uh, Jesus, uh, we see them in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, when they returned. And they start talking about uh, or want to talk about what happened, but there's 5,000 people following, and Jesus needs to feed them. So he does and teaches them a lesson along the way. They just want the people to go home. Jesus said, you give them something to eat. And so Jesus gave them something to eat miraculously. He brings them off to a place by themselves and asks them, who do people say that I am? And so he gets a feel, Jesus gets a feel for what Israel thinks of their Messiah. This is God in the flesh. This is the, the general, this is the great Messiah, the Christ that Israel has been waiting for, that was prophesied in their Old Testament. He's here, and Jesus asks them, who do they say that I am? Well, the best they can come up with is perhaps he's Elijah from the past. Maybe John the Baptist risen from the dead. So the people have missed it. In spite of all the things that Jesus has done and said, taught up to this point, the miracles he's performed, uh, the demons he's chased out, I've surmised in the past, I don't think there was a sick person left in Israel. Jesus was healing people even without faith. He was healing them, showing them who he was. And the fact that the, the demons being chased out of people, being exercised from people is proof that the kingdom of God is upon them did not change their minds. People just thought Jesus was a, a, a sideshow of sorts. Jesus takes three of his 12, and beginning in chapter, chapter 9, verse 28, takes them up on a mountain. Uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, where these three men, Peter, James, and John, saw his glory, saw this wonderful majesty. They saw Jesus beyond just the Christ of God, as Peter called him. They knew now that he was, in fact, God, because they saw him in his glory. And they would later write about it. They would later preach about it. Book of Acts, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, John speaking about it in his gospel and his letters. God himself comes out and speaks. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him, to Peter, James, and John. They come down from the mountain, and there's a man who's been there with his son uh, who is demon-possessed, and they're trying to get this demon cast out. But the the disciples who were sent out to cast out demons, for whatever reason, can't cast this demon out. Perhaps had become amazed with what they perceived to be their own abilities and powers, and were no longer relying on Jesus. So Jesus came down and says, well, how long do I need to be with you people? And he cast the demon out. They could have done it just as easily had they done it in the name of Christ. These people, you would expect the, the disciples at this point to begin falling in line behind Jesus. But no, they're arguing about which of them is greatest. Who's the greatest? They're still having arguments that are humanly, earthly, human, I should say, and earthly. So Jesus tells them very clearly. He tells them, here's what it means to be great. Here's, here's what greatness is. And he takes a child, someone who is the lowest of the low in the society of the day, and brings a child to him and says, if you want to be great, become like this child. See yourselves not as great, but as lowly. 
He says, you want to come after me? Take up your cross daily. Deny yourselves and follow me. Deny yourselves. That's the one thing people just don't want to do today. We want to trust Christ. We want Jesus because we want to know that when we die, we go to heaven. That's what people want. Let's go to heaven. That's, that's people's goal today. Folks, I submit to you that if it's your goal to go to heaven, you've missed the boat. You're not going there. Your goal to go to heaven? I just want to go to heaven. We just want those people to go to heaven. Heaven, what is heaven to you? I've berated you before. I berate myself. What is heaven? Heaven is one thing. It's just one name. It's about Jesus. If you don't want to be with Jesus, there is no heaven for you. In fact, eternity is not spent in heaven anyway. It's spent on the new earth. We learn this from Revelation chapter 19, 20. Chapter 21, chapter 22. Jesus returns to earth and sets up his kingdom here. Everything is redone, either renewed or refreshed, but there's a whole makeover. And there's no more sin. It's all about Jesus And we're going to see that about heaven today, but Jesus is going to, Jesus says, follow me, take up your cross, follow me daily. Then he comes to these people that are following him. And there's lots of people following Jesus, not just the 12. And he takes three men, three people. One guy comes up and he says, I'll follow you. I'm in chapter nine, verse 57. He comes up to him and Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And we know from Matthew's gospel, this guy's a scribe. He's a lawyer. He's an intelligent man. He's apparently followed Jesus. He's seen enough about Jesus. And he's thinking, wherever you go, I'll go. And Jesus essentially told him, yes, but are you prepared to live as I do? Are you prepared to have no place to sleep? Because he says, foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. I, and he calls himself the son of man. I have no place to lay my head at night. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. Will you follow me that way? Will you follow me if there's no guarantee of any success or even a place to sleep at night? Turning from him, he follows, talks to another guy. This guy came up to Jesus. Jesus turns and talks to another guy in verse 59 and said, hey, you, follow me. The guy said, sure, happy to do it. I just need to go home and and wait for my dad to die so that I can bury him, get the inheritance, and then I'll I'll join you later on. Let me know where you're going to be. You know, drop a pen on on the Google Maps or something, and I'll find you, Lord. Jesus said, no, sir, no. You're not going back. Your dad's not even dead. Uh, and, and that's what he, he didn't mean that my dad died yesterday. I got to go bury him. He's talking about a responsibility I have. He's talking about the money he wanted. Jesus is saying, not only do I not have a place to, to lay my head at night, are you willing to take that? Are you also willing to give up your inheritance? Are you also willing to give up what's coming to you to follow me? Most people are not. Most people don't want to uh, give in to some movement where they don't even know where they're going to sleep at night. Some of you, perhaps, have this deal with God. As long as he keeps you in the house you want to be in and drive the cars you want to be, you'll follow him. But he takes those away, and you're out of here. Follow me? Well, as long as I got enough money, Lord, yeah, I'll follow you. No. Can you follow him with nothing? And no promise of getting anything? So he turns that guy away. Every time Jesus comes to someone in Scripture, he never woos them into salvation. He challenges them to not believe. There's too many people that that think that believing is so simple. And it's not. It's called discipleship. There is a cost to discipleship. There's an old book written called The Cost of Discipleship. Anyone have it? By 
I love his name, Dietrich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He died in Nazi Germany. Why did he die in Nazi Germany? Because he was a Christian and he stood up to Adolf Hitler. So he got hanged. And he said, there is a cost to discipleship, a cost to following Jesus. And Dietrich shows that that cost was with his life. And he didn't mind doing it. Another guy said, yeah, Lord, I'll follow you, verse 61, but let me go home and say bye to mom and dad. No, sir. No, you cannot put your hand to the plow, turn back and look at your former life, and go forward in a straight line in ministry. You cannot give your life to Jesus and look back all of your life going, look at what I left. Was that the right move? Did I do the right thing? You know, for me, did I, it was becoming a preacher, the thing, the thing I should have done. Shouldn't I have gone on and gotten my education and made a lot of money? Couldn't I have a bigger house and better cars? Yes. Why do I give the money I give to the church? I could have two more houses if I didn't give to the church with the money I give. Do, do I really want to do this? Is this really how I want to live my life? Never once have I done that, if I said that. This is the path. No better path. I'm going to die doing this. On this hill, I will die. Now, that's not for me to stand up here and say, you need to follow me. I'm saying I put my hand to the plow and I went forward. There was no doubt in my life, no doubt in my mind, I should say, that God said, this is your path, go. Sometimes I wonder if I'm a little too cold as a result, a little too non-caring about the past, a little too non-caring about family, whatever. I have a church to take care of. This is my life, my life. My wife, thankfully, is part of this life. When you're in ministry, it's not a job. You're never off the clock. Praise God. I want to clock in and clock out of ministry serving him. I'm in. How about you? So, at this point, these three people represent apparently a whole crowd of people following Jesus, and Jesus sends them out, the 70. As I said last week in chapter 10, verse 1, some of your Bibles might say 72. It's just a, one of those uh, things in the Greek manuscript. Some say 70, some say 72. We're not exactly sure which one it was, but I'll tell you this. If there were 72, I'll guarantee you there were at least 70. <laughs> I know enough math to know that. They go out in pairs and they go spread the, the good news as Jesus tells them. That was last week's sermon. And Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 16, he tells them, the one who listens to you, that's each person of the 70, each one preaching the gospel, each one who listens to you, listens to me, Jesus says. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. That is Jesus saying, I am God the Son. I was sent by God the Father. If they reject my emissaries, my envoys, the people I've sent out, Jesus is saying, you, if they reject you, they reject me. And if they reject me, they reject my father. Pretty major to, to reject Jesus. And so I have the first point on your bulletin for our text today is that we believe in Christ. We're born again. He saves us. We're born again. We're saved when we believe, when we trust. Trusting in Christ entails that we are in it for the duration. We're in it. We may not know every trial that's going to take us, but we've already put together in our mind no trial will cause us to fall away. And you should think like that. If you're following Christ, let's say you have a wife and a, and a child or, or 10, and you think, oh, what could the worst thing happen to me? Well, if you have a child, the worst thing that happened to you is to lose a child. 
I don't know that there's a greater devastation than to lose a child. I used to, used to think that. I've not lost my two children. They have remained with me and they are in the Lord. Wonderful children. God could not have blessed me with two greater children. Two people that I'm so proud of. But there are, and my wife is still with me. And, and that's been a great blessing next to me, right by my side. I, I could do it without her, but I don't want to. I can live without my wife, but I don't want to. God's kept her with me. The, the pitfalls in ministry, the, the ups and downs in ministry, I never, I always figured the worst thing that could happen would be the loss of a child. I did not know what would happen, what would be, how devastating it would be the betrayal of friends, people you trust, people, that's a personal attack when it's friends that betray you. It's a loss of a child that hurts but it's not a betrayal. It's so painful, you think. I never even had that on my radar. And when it happened to me, I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. You don't, Lance? Really? Seriously, Lance? And I watched many things during that time, read many things, one of which was Luther. I watched the movie Luther and read back through the wonderful story of Luther. I've been through Germany and, and got done the Martin Luther tour everywhere he's been, read his works. And there's a particular scene in the movie that Luther tells the guy, did you think I was not in this to death? Did you think I was leading a reformation and I did not count the cost? Counting the cost of discipleship is what every one of us should do. Imagine what might happen in your life. What could cause you to turn away? What would happen if God did to you what he did to Job? The book of Job is in the Bible for us to consider that very question. If God removed everything, and God, he didn't, God didn't show grace by leaving his wife behind. That was part of the curse, that his wife could stand over him in his lowest of low and say, curse God and die, Job. When he needed that encouragement so badly, she just piled on. What if that happened to you? Are you in it for the duration, or do you have some deal with God? If something doesn't go your way, you're out. Well, if that's what you have with God, you will get that. And he will expunge you from the church. You will be exposed as the tear, T-A-R-E, that you are. As the chaff that you are. This is what trials do. They not only build us, they also reveal who the chaff are. In verse 17, the 70 returned with joy. So again, back to my point one. When we're in Christ, he saves us. We're born again. There's discipleship that's attached to that. Christ sends us, and then we discover the joy of the gospel. That's what it says in verse 17. The 70 returned with joy. Note that, with joy. They had a great experience. Now, Jesus never told the 70 in chapter 10, verse 1. He didn't tell them what he told the twelve. He told the 12, you're going to go out, you're going to have the power to cast out demons, heal the sick, and raise the dead. He didn't tell the 70 that. Yet they come back having these experiences. They come back, they return with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us. Note that last phrase, though. In your name. In your name. Even the demons... So it, it appears that they go out preaching the kingdom of God, telling people that Jesus is the king, the promised king, he's here telling them to believe in Jesus, and they're watching people filled with demons be emptied of demons. Can you imagine that? 
You might see someone and you go, wow, I didn't count on that. I just went up to the people to tell them about the kingdom of God. And they're gyrating on the ground. Demons are coming out. They're coming up thanking me. Wow, that's a story to tell, is it? And so they do. They return with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And by the way, I want you to know, this comes from preaching. God did not send them out saying, now go find demon-possessed people. That's not the commission. Go out and tell them the kingdom of God is upon you. All of this has to do with simply preaching the gospel. By preaching us, what God tells us through the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy 4, 2. It's right there on the placard on my pulpit. Preach the word in season and out of season. Do it in the morning, in the evening, in the winter, summer, spring, fall. Don't ever not do it. Preach the word. You could say it another way. Teach the gospel. Share Christ. That's what the word is. The scriptures, this book of God, this inerrant book that God has given us is the gospel. And so when you go tell people about Jesus, there's a return with joy. Some of you, some of us, uh, at least at one time in my life, I believed in Jesus. I believed in Jesus, but I hadn't had the experiences of going out and actually preaching Jesus. I'm not talking about being a preacher. I'm talking about going out and actually being bold with the gospel. In high school, I, I learned to be, to be bold with it. This girl came and sat with me one time. We're at the football game, and she just starts dumping on me. And I said, have you considered trusting in Jesus Christ? And she did this. <laughs> Is my breath bad? What's up with that? Have you considered believing in Jesus Christ? She had gone to youth camp with us the previous summer. That's why she came to me and asked me. She was young. I was older in, in high school. Have you considered believing in Jesus Christ? I know you know who he is. We went to youth camp together. And I, I watched the, the look on her face. I never had any, anyone ever argue with me. Not in high school anyway. In college you get a few more smart aleck people that don't know anything but want to argue. They've heard something. They read an internet article. Uh, they're trained on Google on how to know nothing. Um, it's easy. When you know the truth, it's easy to refute the lies that come back at you. But you come back from a situation like that and you go, hey, that felt good. I'm glad I did that. There's great joy in it. Folks, if you're on the side of truth, the side of lies always loses. So if you know the truth, you can refute any of the lies, any and all of the lies that come at you. Whether you're talking to a Mormon, a Muslim, a Jehovah's Witness, they return with joy. Even the demons are subject to us, but note that in your name. While preaching the name of Christ, the demons become subject. Note this, verse 18. And Jesus said, or he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, some of your translations just say, I saw him. And that's a pity. Because the tense of the verb does everything to the meaning of this text. The tense of the verb is an imperfect Tense. If you know what imperfect tense, imperfect tense is um, like today I'll step down uh, and we'll be eating soup on the Super Bowl party and I'll say, yeah, I was preaching. That's an imperfect verb. Was preaching. You were listening. It's a continuous action from the past. I was preaching. I was driving. I was learning. Whatever it might be. That's an imperfect tense verb. A perfect tense verb is I preached. I preached to be a perfect tense verb is a past tense verb that has ongoing effects from the future. I preached, and what I preached has ongoing effects, hopefully, anyway. An aorist verb from the Greek text would be a past tense, but it's just a snapshot action. I did that. I went to that place. It happened in the past. It's done. But this imperfect verb tense that Jesus says is, I was watching. 
I was watching. In other words, while you were preaching, I was watching. Jesus didn't go with them, but as the Son of God, he's watching everything they're saying. And I would say what was true then is true now. I was watching Satan. He didn't say, I was watching you preach. You did a good job. He goes to a different dimension. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Let's take a break here for a second. I don't mean a coffee break or anything like that, so don't get your hopes up. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah. Maybe take your Bible. If you don't know where Isaiah is, just turn to the middle of the Bible. You may come to one of the prophets or or, uh, uh, the Psalms. If you're in the Psalms, I want you to go to the right, and you'll come to Isaiah. Just keep moving to the right. If If you're, say, in Ezekiel, you've gone too far to the right, move back to your left. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 is written about a man, a king, but it's going beyond the king to the one who possesses or controls that king. Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. He's speaking of the devil. I want you to know that the devil, according to the Bible, the devil or Satan, Beelzebub, Beelzebul, Belial, this is the same being when he was created, was created beautiful and wonderful, an archangel, an archangel. This archangel, in fact, I want you to save your place there in Isaiah 14 and move over to the right to Ezekiel 28. Let's read Ezekiel first. From Isaiah, it's to the right, Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11. Same situation, 100 or so years difference from Isaiah to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 11, again, it's the king of this country named Tyre. We looked at Tyre last week. The king is a wicked man, and the power behind the king is Satan himself. And here's what the prophet says about that being, that satanic being, Satan himself, who is possessing the king of Tyre. Ezekiel 28, verse 11, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speaking to Ezekiel himself, Take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub, that's an angel, who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So we see here this being this in the Garden of Eden. We know the king of Tyre wasn't there. This is the... the This is the devil himself possessing the king of Tyre and the prophet addressing him. And we learn something about what Satan was. When was he created? Uh, We know that the the angels, if you want to, if you need a proof text, it's Job chapter 38, verse 6 and 7. It's actually verse 7, where it says that when God created, when he laid the foundations of the world, that's Genesis 1. When he laid the foundations of the world, the morning stars and the sons of God, that is the angels, what did they do? They literally shouted for joy. 
Some translations said they sang for joy. The only place in the Bible where you could even come close to saying angels sing. Isn't that interesting? We think people sing like angels. We don't know if angels sing any good. They shout here. They shout for glory, the glory of God. You created the world. So we know they were created before the foundation of the world. These angelic beings, Satan being among them. Go back over to Isaiah 14, beginning in verse 12. The prophet here says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. You know what O star of the morning means? That's where we get the word Lucifer. Lucifer means star of the morning. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, or star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. In other words, Satan observed God, wanted God's throne, decided to make a move for God's throne, rebelled in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 and 9 speak of him being that serpent of old, the devil, who was thrown down to the earth and took a third of the angels with him. We don't know how many angels there are, but however many there are, he took a third with him. They became the evil spirits or demons before the foundation of the world. Now, Satan couldn't get what he wanted. In the Isaiah passage, he says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. He never could do that until what? Until God created it and handed it over to mankind. Remember, God gave dominion to Adam and Eve. What Satan could not get from God, notice how he was immediately present when they were in that garden. Naked and totally naive. And there he was, questioning God's authority. And he took the domain, he took the, uh, the distribution of power that God had given from Adam and Eve, like taking candy from a baby. That's where he came from. That's where he's been. His name, we call him Satan, means the accuser or the adversary. That's what he has become we see Jesus throughout the Gospels casting out demons. These are Satan's envoys, his own evangelists and emissaries, possessing people, taking control of unbelievers. So we know, by the way, Rome, uh, not Romans, John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus himself calls Satan, lowercase g, the God of this world. The God of this world. He calls him in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls him, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers. Paul calls him in Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning, a liar in John chapter 8. That's what this being is, was then, continues to be. If he is the God and the ruler of this world, we know God's the ultimate sovereign, but he's the governor of this world. And that's easy to see, is it not? Look around. Now, he's under God's thumb. He's in the palm of God's hand. God is allowing him to do what he does. In fact, if we look at another example of Satan in the book of Job, he needs permission to do whatever he does. He's asking permission from God himself, comes before God in the book of Job, chapter 1, chapter 2, and asks permission. God gives him permission to torment Job. Without God's permission, he can do nothing. 
In fact, we'll see uh, Luke uh, 21, I think it's Luke chapter 21, where he comes to Jesus. Maybe it's Luke 22. We'll get there. And he asks Jesus for permission to take Peter. Jesus says, no, can't have Peter. Can't have my right-hand man. He has to seek God to get permission, although he's the ruler of this world. That's the world in which we live. He is the ruler. He is under God's thumb. Now with Jesus having come to the world, the kingdom of God in the realm of the ruler of this world, Satan, he's in for a rough time. That's like a a mighty football team coming onto a field. I'll go ahead and give it to them. It'll be the only time. It's like the Philadelphia Eagles coming on the field with a little league first and second grade flag football team. Who's going to win this battle? So if the 70 go out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are now invading the territory the realm of Satan. They're going to remove people out of darkness and move them into the kingdom of light. In fact, that's what Colossians 1.13 says. We transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. This being is shaking in his shoes, as it were. The 70 are going out preaching the gospel and they are watching Satan or Satan's envoys and his emissaries exit people, and Jesus is sitting back in his location saying, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, some say what Jesus was watching, or if you just put it in the past tense, I watched, I saw, that he's talking about that passage from Isaiah 14. But that doesn't even fit the context. They're coming back talking about how demons are submitting to you in your name, and you're saying you saw something millennia ago? before the creation, that doesn't fit the context. Others have said, well, Jesus is saying, I saw it happen when, during my temptations, the 40 days in the wilderness, I saw it happen. That doesn't fit the context either. What fits the context, my friends, is these people going out, giving the gospel in the realm of the Satan, in the realm of Satan's world, preaching the gospel, and Jesus sitting back watching Satan fall with every person who hears the gospel and who receives it, Jesus watches. Do you remember Space Invaders? Back in the 80s when we had Atari. Some of you who remember that? And you fired the button at every time, it, and it, every Space Invader went. <laughs> and those, those invaders just kind of. I know I'm taking it back to the 80s, but I, don't, I hadn't played a video game since then. So that's what I go back to, Atari. That's kind of like what it was. Every time the gospel went out, and you've witnessed lightning, haven't you? That's the simile here, like lightning. The worst lightning I ever saw was on the putting green of a golf course one time, and it just came out of nowhere, and it lit up the entire sky. It it came out of nowhere, and thunder was immediately behind it. I've got an aluminum golf club in my hand. It brings you to your knees, and as soon as it's there, it's gone. As soon as it's there, it's gone. That's the like lightning. While you 70 were out there preaching the gospel in my name, I'm watching lightning strike. I'm watching Satan fall. I mean, like lightning. Bam, 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 bam. Folks, let me submit to you what happened then is still happening. You and I might not be able to see it. And we might get discouraged. Lord, what's the point of sharing the gospel? They don't see this, but Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, gives us an insight. Don't miss this. What we don't see, he does see. What we don't think is happening is happening. 
Each presentation of the gospel, every person who believes, I just think it's the presentation of the gospel itself. Every time is a weapon, is like a nuclear weapon in the realm of Satan's authority. So what's the application? That's easy. Drop a few bombs. Share the gospel. If that's what's happening behind the scenes, bam, bam, bam. The prince of the power of the air is tumbling and falling from the air. By nuclear warheads? No. You know that the weapons of our warfare are not physical, don't you? Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and following. The weapons of our warfare. What's the one offensive weapon we have in that list? In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. What's the one offensive weapon we have? Word of God. The sword of the Spirit. Ain't that wonderful? The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Preach the Word of God. Someone asked me recently, they said, how is it that Satan can, how is it that God can live in the presence of sin? God, no, that, I, they, they presented it, God can't live in the presence of sin, so, and I said, wait a minute, premise is off. God lives in the presence of sin every single day. He lives in your presence, doesn't he? God is not like a vampire with a cross in his face going, I ah, can't see sin. It's just the opposite. It's evil that can't endure the gospel. So why not preach the gospel? Why are preachers today, why have preachers today decided that the gospel itself is too offensive? Let's get rid of the gospel. That's why Satan's power has become so powerful. Even churches are dropping the gospel. Goodness, I saw Andy Stanley. I'm calling him out. He's become a heretic. Preaching that homosexuality is okay. Folks, it's not. It's a sin. We didn't make this up. But let me also add this. It's no worse than you living together with your boyfriend or girlfriend having sex outside of marriage. Both of them are perversions of what God created beautiful. It's no worse than you dishonoring your parents. It's in the same list of sins in the New Testament. We cannot, we must not tolerate sin. We don't hate homosexuals. Are they welcome in our church? Yes, But you cannot live that way. Be a member of the church. Is it because we hate you? It's because we love you. You cannot do what God says don't. What God hates. And Andy Stanley is giving people all kinds of permission to do just that. That's after he said, oh, you don't have to worry about the Old Testament. I bring him up because he went to the same seminary that I went to. Dallas Theological Seminary. Some of you want to badmouth my seminary. The seminary doesn't tell us how to believe, folks. Andy Stanley is a human being. He goes out and decides what he wants to do. DTS doesn't teach us this, this, and this. I have people all the time say, well, he went to the same seminary you did. Oh, yeah, we all go there and get brainwashed. We all believe the exact same thing. No, we're all humans. We get a theologically sound, conservative education. What we do with it after that, that's up to us. So don't lump him in with me because we went to the same school. Just get rid of the gospel. Let's make everyone welcome. No, I say let's join in with causing this being to fall. You ever talk to the devil? Don't. And don't associate with people who do. You have nothing to say to him. You have 
nothing to say to the devil. You have no authority over him. He's been around for millennia. What can you say to him or his demons? If you think someone's demonically possessed, what do you go and say? Tell me your names. Why? But what does that do? How can your authority, how can you getting loud or throwing your coat at them do anything? They're laughing at you. I've never talked to the devil. I will never talk to the devil. Or his demons, I have nothing to say to him or them, and neither do you. We preach God's word in the name of Jesus Christ, and they fall like lightning. Apparently, the disciples in Luke chapter 9, when they couldn't cast out the demon at the base of that mountain of transfiguration, had forgotten that. Jesus, I was watching it. By the way, let's do another by the way later. Let's move on. Verse 19, behold, I have given you authority, Jesus telling the 70. Um, also, I, I want to say that, um, uh, that my wife and I were talking about this passage this morning, and she, she was asking, is it, is it possible that the 70 came back with, uh, with great pride and saying, look, even the demons are subject to us, and, and Jesus is rebuking them? Uh, no, that doesn't fit the context because they're with joy, And they're amazed at what happened, and they're saying they did it in your name, not our name. And Jesus is just simply adding to it, yeah, every time you did it, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Verse 19, behold, I have given you the authority, have given, that's a a perfect tense verb. That means what I gave you, that's my authority, has ongoing effects. And I think by extension, what he gave the 70 is the authority he's given to all Christians. I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy. And note this, and nothing will injure you. Uh, Can't take that literally, not physically anyway. The authority God gave us, is that to cast out demons, heal the sick? as long as we're preaching the gospel. If God so chooses for that to happen at the preaching of the gospel, it will. If he doesn't, it won't. But preaching the gospel is still spiritually powerful. Does it mean literal serpents? I don't think so. Literal scorpions, serpents be snakes. I have given you authority. Does that mean we go out and find snakes and step on them and scorpions? No. Serpents and scorpions throughout the Old Testament are, are an axiom or an idiom for evil, for the devil and his demons. In fact, we know the devil himself is, is a serpent. John calls him that. And uh, we see it in Genesis 3. John calls him that in the book of Revelation. He says, that old serpent, the devil. Revelation 12, and scorpions, what is that, uh, what are those beings, you know, that are let out of that abyssal cavern in Revelation 9, what do they have on their tails? They have tails like scorpions. They, they, they look really weird. They got hair like women. They're strange creatures, but they have tails like scorpions, pain, power. And Jesus is saying, I am giving you, what's inserted there in maybe brackets would be spiritual authority to tread on devils and demons and over all the power of the enemy. Our enemy is not a political foe. If you're a Republican, your enemy is not a Democrat. If you're a Democrat, your enemy is not a Republican. Our enemy always remains, not flesh and blood, but the principalities, the powers of this dark world that are behind those agents. And Jesus has given us power over the enemy. That would be with the gospel. And when he says nothing will injure you, 
Well, John Fox needs to take his book back that he wrote in the 1500s, doesn't he? Fox's Book of Martyrs, three top-selling books of all time. The Bible, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and Pilgrim's Progress. Well, Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us all about these uh, men and women who died. They were burned alive. Why? Because they were Christians. Because they were Protestant. What about this passage for them? Nothing will injure you. I had to write an article. It was my first professional article that I wrote back in uh, 1996, 1997, I believe it was. It was on Christian persecution. And I learned that in the 20th century alone, the 20th century is 1901 to the year 2000. In that 100-year time span, more Christians died for their faith than the previous 1900 combined. People still die for their faith. What about this passage? Nothing will injure you. Again, we're speaking spiritually. I want you to, if you would, turn over with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. That's right near the end of the Bible. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. I want you in 1 John chapter 5. Not the Gospel of John, but his epistles. 1 John chapter 5. Now, if you have a King James Version on this passage, it gets it wrong. It's just, it's a wrong passage. You're, it's not going to read the same way mine reads in any other version of the Bible or a new King James. No disrespect to the King James Version or those who read it, but it's, it's different. John says this in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, we know, and don't you love it when an apostle says that they know? We think, we hope. It might be, no, we know that no one who is born of God sins. Now, the tense of that verb is a present tense verb. It means continues to sin. Or in other words, we know that no one who is born of God or born again lives a lifestyle of sinning. We'll still sin, but it's not our lifestyle. We know that no one who is born of God continues to sin. But he, that's a capital H-E, that's Christ. But Christ, who was born of God, note that, keeps him. Keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. Those born of God don't live a lifestyle of sin, but Christ, who was born of God, keeps him. And the evil one does not touch him. It's clear that the evil one can touch us if God gives him permission. We see that in Job. We know that the evil one can actually kill us if God gives them permission. But what can't the evil one do? He has no access to our souls. He has no access to what really matters. Flesh and blood's gonna die whether he kills us or not, right? We're going. Don't be afraid of it. We are going out of this world, and we don't know when. It might be by Satan. It might just be because God said, it's time for you to come home. But he cannot touch you, and that's what he says. He's speaking spiritually. The authority God has given us is not to kill snakes and scorpions in our house, of devils and demons, and overall power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nothing can touch your soul. Now, that's something right there we would say, that's fantastic. I can go out and preach the gospel, watch people come to know Christ, watch them come to faith in Christ, rejoice in that. I can go back and tell my church and my small group about all those things, and that's good. In fact, if we want to add to that, we can talk about other things we're thankful for. 
I, I have learned to be someone who is, because I have so many things to be thankful for, I rattle things off all the time. I like the very simple things in life. I like a cup of coffee. Anybody with me on that? Is that a simple pleasure in life, a cup of coffee? Some of you are going, Bleh, but you're missing out. You might not be saved. <laughs> if you're putting cream in your coffee, there's something wrong with you. Just a simple pleasure. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for my, I can stand up. I can walk. I gripe in the morning when I get out of bed because everything hurts, but I can still get out of bed. I watched my dad after he had a stroke who could not do it, who could not go to the bathroom on his own, and I learned to be thankful for just being able to get up and go to the bathroom by myself. I love that I can see. I love that I can hear. Because if I couldn't see, the one thing I would beg God for is what? God, just give me my eyesight back, please. Please. If I was deaf, I would say, God, please just let me hear the birds out there sing just one more time. Please, God. I've got that. I've got food. We're going to leave this, this place, and we're going to go in there, and there's food galore. And you're going to go home tonight. If you like football, you're going to watch football on your big, huge screen, t- screen TV. We have so much to be thankful for, and give God the glory for it. If you're a brainiac, and you've got wonderful intelligence, and you've got college degrees, praise God for it. If you've got money and wealth and you're good till you die and you can pass it on to your kids, praise God. But Jesus says, relegate all of that to second best. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. (laughs) Rejoice that you're saved. Jesus puts that you're saved in a, I love the way he puts it, your names are recorded in heaven. I remember when I was in, I don't know, I don't know, I was young. But I was in the who's who. Someone knocked on our door one day. Back when you answered the door, people knocking on the door, and, and they told us about a who's who in America among young students, and you can pay this amount, and your son can get, and he can be in the book of who's who. And by golly, I was a who's who. Pay enough money, I'm in a book who's who. You know? And, and uh, your name's on this. When you graduate, uh, you, you go across the stage, your name's on a list. They say your name. People go, woo, all right, fantastic, that's great. There's a name list in heaven. You're either on it or you're not. Your names are not being added as you believe. The beauty that this list of names in heaven was written before Genesis 1-1. It was written before you were born. You come to know that your name is on this list when you believe in Jesus. When you do trust in him. And when you know this, it doesn't matter if your eyes go, your ears go, your legs go, your health goes. It doesn't matter if everything goes. And there's nothing else to rejoice in. That one thing is everything. Focus on that amazing truth. Names written in heaven. Jesus says this on numerous occasions throughout the Bible. Um, he says here in, in uh, Moses says in chapter Moses in uh, Exodus 32, verses 32, 33. He wants God to forgive the sins of Israel. And he says, forgive their sin. If not, blot me out of your book. The Lord answered him and said, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. Thank you very much, Moses. I'm in charge of the book. You don't get to talk about the book. Daniel 12, 1. Now at that time, and that, at that time, that, that particular context in Daniel 12 is at the end of the tribulation time period. Right before the second coming of Christ. 
Now at that time, Michael, the archangel, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, that is Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Written in the book. Philippians 4.3, Paul says, help these, these women he's talking about, and all the rest of the believers in Philippi whose names are in the book of life. He doesn't say those people who are saved, although that's what he means, but whose names are written in the book of life. Someone says, are you a Christian? Say, yeah, hey, my name is, is written in the book of life. Huh, what? Yeah, my name's written in the book of life. It's written in heaven. It's the same thing. It's synonymous. Revelation 13, 8 says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. That is the beast, the Antichrist. All who dwell on the earth will worship him and everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, books were opened and another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. If the name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hebrews 12, 23, the writer says, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. There's many passages on that. So let me say this. The gifts and powers that God has given us are wonderful and beautiful. Education, fortune, whatever it is you, you rejoice in, that we rejoice in, our health. Some folks, it's your lack of health and you've come to know Christ in this wonderful and amazing way. I've heard stories of people who, who lost everything, became quadriplegics, and then came to know Christ while laying on their beds, not being able to move, and said, thank you, Lord, for taking this from me, otherwise I never would have heard the gospel. Thank you for that. They're thankful that they don't have health because that's how they came to know Christ. Be thankful. Let us be thankful for what God has given to us. But our hope is found in our salvation. A couple of passages here. Our salvation in heaven where our names are, are enrolled, that's where we'll see Jesus. Those separated from our body, we will be at home with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. Where we'll be transformed, 1 John 3, 2. We will be like him. For why? For we shall see him as he is. Our names are in heaven where there's an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Our names are in heaven where we are co-heirs. Co-heirs. With some schmo from earth? With Christ himself. Co-heirs? Are you serious, God? Jesus is my brother in heaven? I get everything he has and he's the creator of the world? Yes. That is worth rejoicing. So these guys come in rejoicing. Even the devils listen to us. Jesus is saying, that's all good. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. We see from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, that there's a group of people that come to Jesus in the end of time, and they're left out of the kingdom of God. And they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says, uh, let's see. Not finding your name. I don't know you. Depart from me, you doers of wickedness. You say what you do. You might have even had the power to do what you do. 
But the indicator of being a Christian is not whether you can work miracles in Christ's name. The indicator is whether your name is written in heaven. And the fruit of your name being written in heaven is that that is where all of your hope is. All of your hope is in heaven where that name is, where Jesus is, who wrote the name. You wouldn't be there if he hadn't put it there in the first place, long before you were born. That is our hope. That is our joy. So as you leave here today, praise God, give him glory for all things. And the wonderful ability to share the gospel and watch Satan tumble through the air. You're not going to see him, but you know what's happening. What a terrible thing it's going to be if we get to heaven one day and we're with Jesus and he says, let me show you. Let's watch a reel, you know, reel to reel movie and let's bring it back over the course of your life and show all the times you shared the gospel. Let me show you what was happening in the heavens. And you're going to go, awesome. And you're going to think to yourself, I should have done it more. And if you didn't do it at all, and you squeaked in by the hair, your chinny chin chin, I'm not sure that's even possible. And you look back over all the times you could have, and you didn't. (laughs) Why not? We're the ones that are the victors. We're the ones with the weapons of warfare that conquer. Get out there and utilize them. Preach the gospel, use the sword of the spirit and rejoice that when the devil is given permission to take you out of existence, you're going to where your name is written in heaven, where the roll is called up yonder. I told my wife, I said, we need to sing that today. She goes, please, never. (laughs) I have to lead the music next week and I thought we're gonna lead off of that. She said, please don't. So put it in your head, when the roll is called up yonder, That's the way old people call heaven, I guess. That's what's going to happen. God's going to call it off. Your name there or not? Let me tell you how to get your name there. Let me tell you how to know your name's there. It's it's, it's as follows. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Let me close there because there's nothing else to say there. Lord God Almighty, thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Forgive us. We, We keep it sealed for some reason in our minds we're embarrassed we're not quite ready for the persecution that might follow or even the death make us bold as lions with your gospel may it be a hill we're willing to die on may it be a hill that we want to die on speak forth through us Lord may you get great pleasure watching Satan fall like lightning through us preaching the gospel Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.